G'day, welcome to Lunch Money, where special situations, uh, commercial finance, uh, business growth advisors, and cash flow forecasting specialists uh, gather to uh, give us their views on uh, the latest business events um, in the news cycle. Um, my name's Nick Samios, I'm the Director and Fund Manager here at Hermes Capital, and I'm your host. So once again, uh, welcome. Today, the glass is half full. Uh, we've had a lot of gloom, but today we're uh, we're looking for uh, we're looking for the silver lining on the clouds, um, and we're focusing on the pivot. Uh, we're hearing a lot of people use this word pivot. Politicians are using it, um, and we're hearing uh, business commentators talk about it. Uh, whether it's pivoting uh, industries, or in our case, we're going to be talking about pivoting business models, um, uh, pivoting businesses. Um, why do businesses need to pivot? Um, as we've had this uh, COVID uh, situation, uh, buyer behaviours have been changing and one has to wonder whether or not some of those buyer changes in buyer behaviours because of COVID circumstances are actually going to become uh, rusted on new habits, whether or not behaviours have changed permanently, the way people do things. Demand for certain products has dropped. Um, demand for other products and services uh, on, the, on the flip side has increased. Um, there's challenges in supply chain. Uh, certain supply chain weaknesses have been found out and uh, businesses are looking to rely less on the way they've done things in the past. Um, there's challenges with capital availability, of course, and people are having to do more with less. Um, and there's a lot of pressure, of course, uh, to take the costs out of businesses. And all of these things are, um, are putting pressure on businesses to pivot and pivot's the buzzword. Um, so today I have uh, two panellists um, who are joining us, uh, experts in their fields of uh, both cash flow forecasting and business advisory, advising for uh, turnarounds, but also uh, for, for businesses that are going through growth and changing their business models. I'm going to start off by introducing Michael Ford um, from Castaway Forecasting. G'day, Michael. How are you going? Nick, how are you going? Fantastic. Really great to have you on. Before we started this podcast, before we even had episode one, Michael and I have sort of been talking about doing this together. And mm. at long last, uh, long last, uh, we, we get together. Um, I've known you. I've known you for, for many years, and uh, I, I, I remember when I remember you from when you were a, um, a special educator with the CPA, and uh, and now you've got this uh, this product, uh, Castaway, uh, Castaway Forecasting, and it's amazing how. More and more, I'm hearing people mention it. I was watching a webinar the other day, um, and someone was saying uh, you need to do a three-way model, and uh, something like Castaway is the best best to do that. How did Castaway come about? Long time ago, we we launched this in September 2010. Long, uh, uh, so uh, the idea of it really, as an accountant, I came through KPMG and PW, and whenever we had to do a budget or a forecast, we were straight to Excel. And there was no continuity, no consistency. People had different methods. And it was hard to do much more than just a P&L forecast. So uh, I got involved after leaving the profession, got involved in coaching some entrepreneurs and found we needed some tools. Uh, Three-way modelling was something just dawned on me. I, I found out about it through an old product called Win Forecast. And um, working with some businesses, we figured we needed something more powerful. It's the, it's the encapsulated story of it all, but there was, yeah. I assumed as an accountant there would be a ton of tools like this out there in the world and was surprised to find there wasn't. Mm. Tools that made it easy to produce a P&L forecast, convert that into a balance sheet and cash flow forecast, and then use it for scenario modelling and the like. You know, tools that actually help answer the questions that CEOs are really asking. Um, yeah. There was a gap in the market. We thought we'd, uh, we'd, we should jump in. 
Look, I remember years ago, uh, uh, I guess it was probably around the time you were developing this, you know, we'd be looking at a business and one of our advisors would say, listen, you should ask them for a three-way. And uh, back in those days, you know, three-way forecasts were a bit of a black art. Um, and and you'd, you'd ask accountants for them and they'd sort of nod as if they knew what you were talking about. Uh, uh, but, uh, look, we'll come to more about the uh, the nuts and bolts of forecasting and uh, the important role, obviously, it plays. What uh, what what keeps you busy? What, what, what keeps you busy these last week or so? This week, I've had the whole range of experiences. Uh, we've just signed off on uh, a record sales month and a sales quarter here at Castway. We're, we're doing a huge amount of work and business over in the UK, a lot of it, a lot in Australia as well. Wow, uh, as accountants, bankers, investors are all starting to ask for three-way modelling and 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 uh, uh, thankfully what you're talking about, Castaway being on the lips of people, is, uh, that's really mm. helped drive our, our business over the last several months. Um, that's been wonderful. Uh, in in the office here, we've just signed off on a on a refurbishment of the office to re reorganise it around the idea of collaborative or being a collaborative creative workspace. So in yeah. response to COVID, we can't just have rows of desks anymore. We've got to turn this into a place where people can come and collaborate but do it safely. That's been a, a shift in mentality. The third thing I think I, I I own a gym as well as a side investment in the gym, and we opened uh, two weeks ago. And that's slowly starting to build back up. But what we're finding is it's hard to get great staff because they're all very happy on JobSeeker at the moment. Yeah. So mm. there are these practicalities. So yeah, it's been we've had we've had uh, the feast and famine at the, in all in the same week. I guess it's interesting with the gym. Uh, you know, that's one of those areas where you're probably a little bit vulnerable to people changing their habits and staying changed. I mean, are you finding people are coming back? What's the how's that working out? Some are. I mean, the old saying, it takes 30 days to, to make a habit and, and you can break it even more quickly. Over yeah. COVID, a lot of people started to exercise in different ways. They found different 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 methods. So we expect we won't get all of our members back. Mm. At the same time, we've got a few people who've gone into hibernation over COVID. So it's almost like a, another New Year's Eve or a New Year's resolution period where we get lots of members coming in. Yeah, well, I think one of the things that COVID, you certainly get the extra love handles uh, through COVID. Um, well, there's more so, of us to go around. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I know myself, I mean, you can do what you can at home, but there's nothing like throwing around a heavy bar or jumping on a, um, you know, on an ergo, and you can only do that at the gym unless you've got uh, plenty of money. So uh, yeah, I'm sure eventually right. it will come back. All right, well, look, uh, we'll introduce our next uh, our next uh, panellist. Uh, so just we'll put you on hold there, Michael, and uh, we will uh, get Jamie Holroyd on. And Jamie joins us from WA. Jamie was one of our first guests uh, way back when, in the beginning of COVID, when we started this. How are you going, Jamie? We're doing very well, Nick. Very well. So. For those that uh, missed out on our second episode, um, Jamie has a business called Stratosphere and he's uh, a, a consults on uh, helping businesses grow, uh, I guess, with a... Uh, I guess you, you do both growth and turnaround. You've got a, a corporate uh, corporate finance background, and I guess you're bringing that expertise uh, to the table. Uh, and what keeps you busy these last little while? Look, we, we've been really busy. Um, we, just like Michael, we've had a record uh, June. But uh, people ask me how we're going, but that June is probably the culmination of 12 to 18 months' work, which just happened to um, culminate in June. So. We've been doing a lot of work in industry roll-ups, working on two at the moment. Um, what we've found is that businesses that are struggling, that have had a hard time, their best way to extract value is to sell to a competitor and the larger players are looking to build scale and, and they're using scale to build greater efficiency. So that's something we've been doing a lot of. Um, 
when it's been really good transactions, both for the buyer and the seller. Those sorts of things, that that thing of the industry roll-up and, the you know, uh, you said the bigger players are looking to grow, I guess, through acquisition. Is that that's How's COVID affected that? Well, I think that's actually accelerated it. We've had um, you know, costs have been high. In, in WA, we've probably had a little bit of a flatter economy for a while and businesses have been struggling along. And I think COVID... Um, the liquidity that's been put in the market with JobSeeker and JobKeeper and low interest rates, superannuation release, has meant that a number of businesses are suddenly doing a lot better and they've taken that as the opportunity to reorganise and step up or step out. So. I mean, I noticed uh, the Queensland government is loaned a billion dollars uh, under a special program, maximum loans of two hundred and fifty grand. You know, no repayments at all, no interest or principal for the first twelve months. I mean, all of that sort of stuff. When you when you when you add to add JobKeeper and uh, and the other concessions to it, I guess yeah, the wise play is is to do something now while you've got that, not wait until it all runs out. Mm. Well, look, I think that we're at the critical moment now where you, you we go into this crisis. No one really knows where it's going. It's a little bit uh, nerve wracking, but I think the threat of cash payments ending in circa three months means that you know people need to decide now what they're going to do after that and there is no real certainty um yeah makes it difficult and um and so have you got uh, you've obviously you've had a pipeline before covid and what what sort of come in what sort of new stuff's come into the pipeline since look that's uh really interesting that um what we're finding is um People need to make a decision, as I said, to get in or get out. And we've had a couple of people that we've spoken to for a while who've been struggling along and outlined their options to them. And it's been interesting in terms of their, sometimes their decision to try and make a broken business model work. And I think it is, whether it's a pride issue, whether it's a stress issue, you know, unwillingness to confront uh, challenges. But uh, as I said, there seems to be a new level of optimism. We've seen some really great pivoting from a few businesses. I get quite inspired by that. For example, we've got a, a, um, a hospitality and recreation business, and these people have spent millions on a on an expansion. They only just finished, and then they run smack into COVID, and they've done some really uh, innovative things. They um, a very large facility. They have about eighty to one hundred thousand dollars, hundred thousand visitors a year. So they have quite a large car park. And what they did was they turned the restaurant facility around. They built a drive-through um, pizza uh, service, and in the car park they set up a drive-in, right? And it just created a really cool community atmosphere. And As in the movies, yeah, wow. so, Cheech and Chong up in smoke, that sort of thing. I mean, I think that's. Yeah, I've got my other example here of our, our hand sanitizer. Let's see that local winery started producing hand sanitizer and did that really, really quickly. Yeah, so there's been some. A great entrepreneurial spirit out there, which is great to see. And I, and I know uh, you know you've got a corporate finance background, and you've worked uh, you've worked with some major banks. Uh, are you finding yourself? Uh, how much of it is uh, about uh, working with the directors and the owners, and how much of it is uh, uh, pitching to banks as well? Oh, look, it's a bit of both. But you know, it's a really interesting time. Banks are very, very reluctant to take action, so we're kind of in this sort of zombie zone. Yeah. But so if you want something productive, it's very slow and very time-consuming. So. Okay. All right. Well, look, we'll bring uh, we'll bring Michael back. There he is. And I was interested uh, when when I mentioned uh, to Jamie that uh, our other guest today was Michael. Um, Jamie said, "Oh, I know Michael really well." You know. Um, so uh, I'm just interested uh, in how you guys work together. Well, I think um, one of the things for us 
um, is that to, to understand a business, um, we find that business owners are typically not on top of their numbers. And we're not talking about the accounting numbers, but when we're talking about accurate gross profit margin assessment or we're talking about break-even analysis, they, they either don't know or it's inaccurate. And you actually can't do a forecast unless you understand that sort of information. And, and much like Michael described, I was a little bit the same. When I left the bank, um, had to go and build my own three-way forecast in Excel. And when I started doing that, I didn't know if I could actually achieve it. Um, we got there, but it's very, very difficult to do for all the reasons that Michael outlined. And so we found our way to cast away. And you know, Michael and I have had a lot of interaction over the last year or two. And yeah, it's been a, a, a wonderful addition to our, our product suite. So I guess, Michael, you've got a lot of things to cast away product, but every business is different, of course. And, mm. and, and so what, they're picking up the phone to you when they've got a particular conundrum that may not necessarily... Uh, or not so obviously fit the model? Is that is that how it works? Yeah, people come to us when they've got a frustration, their Excel models aren't working or they're just too yeah. costly and expensive to to keep going with or they're starting to, to not trust the numbers or where they need some more robustness in their forecasting, where they want to spend more time thinking about scenarios and planning rather than crunching numbers. Um, you know, and people like Jamie, we we really love getting in with people who get it who get the idea of three-way modelling, get the idea of operations-based forecasting, who get the idea of transforming conversations with banks, lenders or other financiers and businesses so that we, uh, the end result is we build a stronger small business community because people like Jamie support businesses learning for themselves what's going on. What I should say and what I probably should have done a little bit earlier is not everybody who watches us is necessarily a, uh, an accountant. But when we're talking about a three-way model, we're talking about a model that, that, that the three ways are one is the profit and loss, uh, the balance sheet and the cash flow. So, um, you know, in the old days, I remember, you know, we, as a lender, you'd ask someone for a forecast and really it was a revenue forecast and maybe they'd add back a bit of depreciation and call that a cash flow forecast. Um, but of course, you know, then we wanted to see how it affected the balance sheet, and and then the cash flow spits out of all of that. So that's just the, that's just for uh, for the non technical and non technical friends. Um, um, how how often? I guess I'll put the question first to you, Michael, and then I'll put it to you, Jamie. Um, I mean, how much of cash flow forecasting is uh, is for planning, and how much of it is actually a diagnostic in itself? For me, the we we uh, we have a triangle logo, and one of the, the the reasons for that is we think forecasting is all about three things: learning from the the past, finding ways to improve the present, and then also finding ways to design a better future. I think you've got to understand the diagnost uh, understand the mechanics and the the dynamics in your business before you can properly do a forecast. I'd say it's both at the same time. It's really a conversation. It's about improving your understanding of how the business works. Uh, I don't see any real difference. And Jamie, when you're when you're sort of going through this process with a client, I mean, how much of it? I mean, is it a case where you discover a lot about the business, or even the client themselves discovers about the business and maybe where they've gone wrong? Or... Well, it's something that I think you described before as a dark art, and that's certainly how it feels. And one of the things that we see is it's very difficult sometimes to explain to people that your business is going to fail with predictable certainty because the numbers don't add up, right? And so it doesn't matter how much goodwill, how much effort, how much passion, it's just not going to work. And it's very easy to – I always say we we build a um, you know, business model from the bottom up, right? So we take the numbers, we take the inputs, which is for us, you know, it's the way that Castaway is structured, and build up the business model from the bottom up rather than the top down. So typically what happens is a business owner – 
thinks they'll get more revenue and magically money will pour out the bottom. Now, we've certainly been involved with businesses where the natural tendency is to go out and win work. I'm in trouble. I need to turn the business around. I need more revenue. Yeah. I take on more, um, more jobs. Maybe I'll take them on a thin margin. And what it actually does, it sometimes it exacerbates the working capital issue and it makes it right. worse. You, know, you might be better off to shrink the business, release cash and um, restructure and go that way. So, And you can tell that with it was a predictable certainty before you start if you've got proper modelling in place. I guess uh, I guess shrinking the business is, is one way of uh, pivoting in itself, I suppose. Well, it depends what you do with that cash. You want the best return on the on the cash you've got invested in the business. Yeah, Michael. Yeah, what you often find is there's businesses where if you if you look at them from a helicopter view, there is a profitable core, which is a smaller business that's highly profitable, good return on capital, good cash flow. Yeah. And then there's bits that have been added on over time due to customer demand or people's predilections or opportunities that have been spotted and gone for. And some that have worked, some haven't worked. So yeah. some of the pivot is actually stripping the business back, leaning it, leaning it off to that profitable core and getting back to the basics effectively. Well, you have beautifully segued into our uh, first, uh, our first uh, news headline uh, for the week. We've only got a couple of headlines this week because we're, we're trying to be focused ourselves. And the big story, of course, is uh, reborn Virgin pivots to value over elite lounges. So this is the story of uh, Virgin going forward being being a little bit like the old Virgin. It was more about value and um, rather than that, rather than the high end. So uh, I know, Jamie, you, you had a few thoughts on this. Oh, look, I'm not sure you want to get me started on the airline industry. And uh, I think it was Warren Buffett who said that if he saw the Kitty Hawk take off, he would have shot it down because if you had the, the total profit of every airline that ever existed, it comes to less than zero. So it's a very, very... Hard space to win in. That, that's that, that, that's interesting. Uh, what 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 I what I did find. I mean, it's it's interesting. You, you can break down just that headline. Reborn Virgin pivots to value. I guess you know one question is what is value? I mean, obviously there's bottom line value, but what they do seem to have done. When I look at this article, uh, they surveyed some thousands of uh, of users. I, I didn't get the phone call, but. Um, they surveyed a lot of people to try and find out what they like and what they don't like and how important the lounges were to them. I mean, I must have say, myself as someone who's done a fair bit of travel, you know, the lounges, at some point you, you kind of skip the lounge because, you know, you, you, it's, it's, you know, if you, you generally if you're a frequent flyer, you, you know, you, you're leaving a meeting as late as you can to run to the airport. You don't have a lot of time for the lounge anyway. But um, what, what do you think, Michael? I mean, you were just talking about you've segued into this with the, with the idea of focusing. I mean, they're talking about having fewer aircraft. I don't know if they're going to have one model like they used to, but they're talking about focusing on the on the 737s. The airlines are such difficult things. They're hugely capital intensive. The more complication you added, the more types of flights or the more types of planes, the more types of routes, the more uh, add-on services and, and support you've got to build around the business. If you look at how Virgin got to where, where, where it, it got to, this is almost like a re, re, retreat back to 2010. Mm. Uh, they were a very successful small business, uh, low-cost airline. But then Qantas caught them in a pincer movement. They introduced mm. Jetstar and then... Uh, uh, by that point, Virgin was too expensive. Their cost structure was too big to be really a low-cost airline to compete against a, a leaned-off, uh, non-unionised uh, Jetstar. But they also didn't have the scale to compete against against Qantas. They bought John Borgetti in, in, in 20, 2010, ex-Qantas guy, 
he had to choose one way or the other, and he chose to go take Qantas head-on in business lounges and the like. Now, the article talks about uh, Virgin only having 4,000 lounge members. That seems a, low, a very low number for the amount of investment and noise I've heard. I, they I they all seem the to be there whenever I'm there. So uh, Every yeah. Friday, correct. <laughs> Every can never, never uh, get a free pie. Yeah. Uh, it seems like uh, what, it's interesting. It's almost like a class uh, they're starting up a class war, saying it's only the elite who need these lounges now, and they're saying, "Well, yeah. we'll go for the everyman." Which maybe there's a space for it. I still question they've got high, uh, they've got a high cost structure. Although Bain coming in, acquiring Virgin for a lower uh, on a lower capital base, may give them an opportunity to make return on capital uh, mm -hmm. with this method. Look, I mean, yeah, it's it's very interesting. Um, I mean, you, you, there was an article a little while ago, uh, Chris Corrigan, who. I think might have been the CEO or certainly yeah. heavily involved back in the Virgin Blue days. And he was strongly advocating, uh, you know, saying, listen, we used to make money. Uh, we were very focused. Um, you know, it's a bit of a trap. I mean, again, as a, as a frequent flyer, you know, it's good to, you know, you don't want to switch airlines just because you're going to a different city. So they do need to have broad coverage. Um, and, and I guess the, one of the other interesting things here is another one in the, in the promo for today's um, today's podcast I, I i asked a provocative question about how do you see around corners because you know part of all of this is we really don't know what the world's going to look like um, maybe you know maybe aircraft travel people will come back when it's going to come back who knows we've got a spike in cases uh in victoria we don't know if and when so i mean with that particular challenge in mind i mean how, how do you deal when you're in forecast when you're forecasting generally how do you deal with that challenge of of the unknown in the future. I'll start with you, Jamie. Well, it's interesting. We talk often about what we uh, don't know, but we forget about what we do know, right? We do know that if you're going to run a, a thin margin, high volume business, you need to execute with precision or you're not going to win, right? So um, I think that a lot of the talk around Virgin, it is capital intensive. They have struggled for capital. It's hard to see this strategy winning. Um, right. You know, there, there's a certain number of uh, people that travel domestically and internationally. You know what those numbers are. They're not going to change substantially. So it's how do you make that uh, model win in the short term? And you should be able to do that with a relative sense of predictable certainty. So I know in the past that airlines, where they looked at the major challenges, now sometimes you can get distracted by asking customers what they want because sometimes what they say they want and what they actually want are a couple of different things. We know that customers want simplicity. We know that customers hate booking in at the airline and they hate uh, waiting for their baggage. So there has been airlines where you deliver the baggage straight to someone's hotel. You know, that's something that you would actually pay for and it is more convenient. And people travel a lot, right? You sort of hate that waste of time and standing around. So it's, how do you come up with a strategy that, predictably should you deliver you the results? Okay, well, look, we might just uh, have a look at the next uh, the next headline. Um, so this one came from the Wall Street Journal. It was last weekend, and it's about uh, why the American consumer has fewer choices, maybe for good. And again, this is um, uh, talking about, uh, I guess, narrowing the product range. And we're you know, apparently Harley-Davidson is looking at fewer models. Uh, there's an example in there about the IGA carrying less lines of, uh, of toilet paper. What, what do you think about that, Michael, the, the idea of businesses sort of reducing their ranges? 
I think anyone who's walked down the aisles of a, even a local Woolies or Coles has been astounded by the amount of choice even we have here in a small market like Australia. Yeah. And you've got to think that the business, the economy can't actually support that range of choice. The amount of duplication in back office, in manufacturing, in delivery and logistics it takes to get 27 brands of toilet paper on the shelves is deeply wasteful. Mm. Uh, However, again, we've got to think about how we got here. We get here because businesses need to create some differentiator. We've gotten to micro-niching effectively, which is where we've got 27 different types of toilet paper that all smell slightly different and feel slightly different. Yeah. Um, the consumer has gotten what they've asked for in, this, in, in here, but you've, you've, you've got increasingly marginal bits of business that are being added on to, to, to businesses that have presumably got a degree of uh, manufacturing capacity available. Isn't it, I'd be happy. I mean, you see the you contrast that with the success of think, something like Aldi. Aldi's done well around the world by having a small number of reasonably decent quality products for a decent price. People aren't overwhelmed with choice, but, but they've got everything they need. I, you know, I, I think choice is a is tantamount to wealth. You know, we feel wealthy, we feel prosperous if you've got millions of bits of choice, and maybe we've overshot what the market actually needs. Well, I think uh, Jamie said before that um, sometimes it's a mistake, you know, the, 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 to ask the customer what they want. I mean, do they really want twenty different flavors of Tim Tams, for God's sake? I mean, it's it's not enough that you can choose between Tim Tams and Monte Carlo. Uh, you need to choose between, uh, you know, uh, all of those different kinds of Tim Tams. What 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 um, what, what do you think, Jamie? Well, the, one of the things that's interesting is whenever we get in a, uh, involved with a business, one of the first things we do is we break down the revenue composition and. The Pareto rule tends to hold up pretty well in most businesses that you know, 20% of the customers deliver 80% of the value. And that it's scary how often that holds true. So um, those, some of those marginal customers don't really add any value. Um, as you may be aware, we're involved with some large pizza chains at one stage. And 80% of their revenue actually comes from four different types of pizza, right? even though they've right. got 20 or 25 and the cost and complication that adds. The other thing is I think there's a natural business cycle that you um, reduce the range, become more efficient, streamline things, become more profitable, and then over time, Michael sort of pointed out, then other people start to add increased offerings that then drags the attention away and that cycle then expands again. Over my sort of corporate life cycle, I've seen this happen three or four times where it's expand, uh, consolidate, expand. So I, I just see that as a natural sort of evolution. But... The one thing that we know is that really successful businesses, as in really want successful ones, tend to have a very narrow focus. They do one thing and do it pretty well. It's very difficult to do more than one thing exceptionally well and outbeat other people. We talk a lot, a lot about what we call corporate arrogance, and that really is thinking that you can do something that someone else has been doing for years and expect to outperform. Yeah, I guess there's also um, there's also uh, that thing that people are good at. I can't remember. There's some special term for it. Um, uh, they've, they've got the Midas touch with one thing and they think they, they can extend that Midas touch to a bunch of other things. And, and that can certainly um, that can certainly be folly. Um, I guess when you're um, I guess one of the things. When you when you're forecasting, when I ask for a forecast, I'm particularly uh, I always ask for line items of, uh, of revenue types. Particularly if we're talking mining services and construction, I like to see line items for uh, for different uh, well, it might be projects, 
uh, different customers and uh, and that sort of thing. You know, when you look at that line item process, uh, you know, that's when you might see what's going to work and what should be dropped. Uh, absolutely. It's really interesting to talk about mining services. You know, of any industry I know of, they're one of the most practised at going through boom and bust reactions. Uh, you know, they, as, as the mining boom comes on, these mining services organisations grow massively. And then the contraction happens and the contractions happens quickly. Uh, so I, you've got to forecast line by line because there's yeah. different sets of behaviours, different payment terms, different levels of certainty. If you're talking manufacturing, there's different levels of, of inventory. There's always different levels of working capital. Yeah. The other point is line by line gets you closer to the story of the business. One revenue line is just a set of numbers. A forecast is yeah. never a set of numbers. It's a story of what you expect to happen in a business. And if it's if all you can see it is, you know, a million dollars a month, you lose it, – it feels like the finance team have taken over and the operations team have been ignored. You know, we yeah. always, as you do, look for line by line. We always look for the stories behind the forecast. In fact, I think people often do forecasting the wrong way. They start with the numbers and then figure out the story. We always encourage them to think about the story first. Get away from the spreadsheet. Get away from Castaway. Yep. Think about the story of what you want to happen, and then you write that story in the numbers. Yep. Okay. Now, one of the things about about pivoting, you know, if you, you you can see that a you know particular business model isn't working, whether it's circumstantial because of COVID or otherwise. Um, Jamie, what, what uh, this is obviously, I assume, a, a big part of what it is you what it is you do how do you how do you decide what directions a business should pivot in what are the what are the sort of things that you look for yeah look this is something we focus on a lot and uh some of the stories that you've mentioned have me thinking about you know very successful business people who've sold businesses for large amounts of money and then gone out and done something different and then torn up millions of dollars and that that's a pretty consistent pattern as i mentioned before it's quite difficult to um go into other areas now, the one thing that we see is sort of slightly controversial. I think there's been way too much focus on mission, vision and values. Right? I think those things are they're important, but they're important at the margin. The, the thing that's interesting, you can go to any corporate business and they'll have all the mission and vision and values. Typically what happens is you know, people breach the values and there's no real recourse for it, so they, they don't really live. But when you ask a customer, what is your core competency, you'd be shocked how often they can't answer the question. Right? Now, if you're going to pivot, what is it that you're actually good at? What, what mm. Where can you pivot to? If you're going to pivot to an area where you've got no core competency at all, then you're not going to succeed. Or it might be that you have core competency that you don't uh, appreciate. I mean, how do you, I guess, is that a process that you go through to try and uh, to, to try and tease out what the core competencies of the business are that you're dealing with? Yeah, look, in terms of what we do, it's not, you know, it's not a lot of uh, science, but it is a lot of discipline. And the major thing to have a successful business is not to make mistakes. That's that's more, making mistakes is more damaging than maybe not executing perfectly or not being best practice. So if you can stop the mistakes for start, so when someone goes to go in a different area, and we talk a lot about we have um, our core competency, then we have um, related diversification. I always use the example, a bit like a motor uh, a motor car yard sells cars, but they also service cars. That's a natural sort of synergy. Uh, one feeds the other. That makes sense. But if I'm going to start selling you know, um, garden tools, well, maybe that's a distraction. Maybe that's a different market. So we're always looking for, can I sell a, another product or service to the same client in the same location? That normally gives me a good sense of where I should try and expand to. 
Right. Yeah, agreed. That, that, that idea, interesting about the core competency, it becomes the pivot point or it becomes the fulcrum around which you should pivot. Effectively, it's like the pin in the middle of your, uh, your compass. If, if, if It's much easier to pivot when you've got a core competency. You can just spin around a little bit as opposed to jumping to a completely different thing. I remember working with a guy years ago. He was a, a bricklayer, a brick, a bricklayer, $15 million bricklaying business. He did okay and thought he was so good at that he should open a boat yard. So he started selling boats. Okay. <laughs> because that takes yeah. capital and that takes yeah. sales ability. Yeah. Yeah. And it yeah. predictably didn't work. You know, yeah. you see the, the, these, are, they're not pivots actually. They're, you know, they're, they're just flights of fancy in some ways. Uh, about, yeah, look, uh, we had um, Peter McAtamini, who is a yeah. wine industry consultant. Uh, I think you might know Peter, Mike, Michael, actually. Yeah, uh, I do. I do. Yeah, he, he, he was on, uh, I don't know, six or eight weeks ago, and we were talking a little bit about pivoting. We weren't focusing on it, but it came up sort of in passing. Um, and he made the comment that in the wine industry, there were some wine businesses that were already heavily into digital uh, digital sales. Um, and online sales and what have you, and there's some businesses that weren't. But he made the comment that he didn't think, and he may he may fact check me on this, but the way I remember it, he made the comment that he didn't think that in the middle of COVID was necessarily a time to be changing your business model. Um, I think it's challenging to try and build brand new skills and become expert at it. I think for the the last eight twelve weeks, the market has been forgiving. We've all gone onto Zoom. We've gone into Teams. It's okay yeah. to have been rough and ready. It's okay to have been a bit ragged around the edges. But yeah. now that we're, we're, we're several months in, business or consumers are going back to, you know, the, 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 there is a flight to experience. You know, it's the time for changing and switching rapidly has is, is probably passed, I reckon. Um, it's hard to learn a brand new skill, although sometimes necessity is the mother of invention. Right. Um, wineries are interesting because they make profit in concentric circles out from home base. They make most profit, get best cash flow and best certainty by selling to their their uh, their wine list, you know, their, yeah. their member list, and yeah. then this uh, and sell a door. And the second best is you know the local region, and the third best is the state. Fourth best is the country. Fifth best, where margins are much tighter, payment terms are much longer, demand uncertainty is much greater. Fifth best is when we go overseas. Uh, I think you know we we talk about it internally here. We're we're looking at stretching to the UK. And the challenge is, where do you put your focus? Do you focus on building building in remote markets, or do you start to really focus on owning the local market or becoming you know much stronger in the local market? Sometimes that chance of growth is alluring. Yeah, I guess uh, interesting. I mean, we, we we've I was saying to Jamie before, you know, whether you should be looking at new markets. Uh, or new products, and it's a two by two uh, slide. The old Igor Ansoff, uh, you know, should you go for new markets uh, to exist, existing products in new markets, or uh, new products in existing markets, that sort of thing. I mean, you mentioned that in the wine trade, it's all about selling to their their customer list. So I wonder, Jamie, when you're talking to a customer, if they are looking at uh, at looking for new ways of making money, are, are you, uh, you know, how do you choose between uh, focusing on the existing class, customer list? maybe with new products versus uh, expanding the customer list with what you already have? Well, one of the things that we've begun focusing on is um, our business has always been, at its core, focused on a customer balance sheet and its capital position because that really determines where you can go. So 
to answer that in two or three different ways, you, you mentioned before about the winery, is this the time or not the time to expand or change? Now, um, if, you're, if you're incurring financial losses, I always work on the theory that a financier will typically uh, allow you gearing to about three times. So for every dollar I lose in capital off my balance sheet or my capital structure, right. Right. effectively it's $3 I can't borrow. And that can't be sustained for very long. So if, you, if you're making losses, you, you don't have a choice. You have to arrest that as soon as possible. The other thing that we have seen is I might have a successful business. Maybe I've got one store or one branch and it's pretty successful and very profitable. And I open a second one or I buy a second one, suddenly it's not profitable. And we certainly see the dilemma that people have. Well, what do I do? Do I spend my time fixing the broken one and take my eye off the one that's supporting it? And that, that becomes a real challenge for people. So, um, you're fighting a war on two fronts. Yeah, yeah. So, so it's around for us. It's around clarity, around decision making. What do you do when and in what order? Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, look, uh, we might. Uh, we, it's been such a fascinating discussion. I think we could talk for a long time. I think we might just wrap up by asking um, how how do you guys see things unfolding over the next? You know, say between here and Christmas. I mean, are you are you upbeat? Uh, are you defensive? I'll start with you, Michael. What 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 are your thoughts generally? In our business, we're certainly upbeat, um, and I think we, we we practice what we preach in that forecasting is never about predicting; it's about preparing. So I don't know what's going to happen, but, but but what we've got is we're running five different scenarios at the same time, and we understand what we're going to do if each or any of them come to fruition. All of them, we understand tactics. We, we're we're looking at far more remote service, so remote customer service. We're looking at becoming an education business on top of the software business to teach people the philosophy and thoughts around forecasting. Yeah. Uh, and maybe we're looking at getting out of the gym game, uh, I think, <laughs> in the, over the next six months. I don't yeah. mind spending money. I don't mind money money leaking out as long as there's a good reason yeah. for it. But uh, yeah. we'll see where that leads to. Yeah, I've often thought I wouldn't mind owning a gym, but uh, not, not, not right at the moment, I don't think. Just best way to make know. a small fortune. Yeah, right, right, start right. with a big one and buy a few gyms. No, they're, they're yeah. actually very, very great cash flow businesses in the yeah. right circumstance. And right now, there will be people coming back who are looking for flexible, low cost alternatives to working out in their park. And so well, it's actually a good time for, 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 uh, for gym ownership. I've got to say, look, I, I'm, I know I've been having a few meetings in town lately and I'm not the only one showing up in jeans because the old suit yeah. is still a little bit too <laughs> tight uh, as, as a result of those COVID kilos. What about you, Jamie? What, uh, how, how do you see what's your, what's your take on the, on the near future? Well, look, I, I'm relatively optimistic. So I, I'm looking at this from two different perspectives. Now, look at the JobKeeper payments and what I see is effectively the government recapitalising a lot of businesses that need it. And that that payment is coming in as pure margin. So what it's allowed is allowed people the time and space to actually pause and invest in their business. We're seeing a lot of people review systems and a lot of people review processes. So I'm kind of thinking that it's like someone's pressed pause on the world and given particularly SMEs and those emerging corporates the time and space to actually improve their business and see where they go from there. So um then you've got the contrary position where that cash is going to stop and what's going to happen after that. But I think you've got to use this time well, and I, I'm, I'm seeing a lot of people who are, so I'm relatively optimistic around that. We've seen some really nightmare scenarios. So we did a, an acquisition in the transport industry, and the target customer had two large customers. One was a dis department store supply chain, 
and the other one was a you know furniture retailer, right? And so we were horrified about what this might mean. This all unfolded right in the middle of the transaction, and in both those cases, it would appear that discretionary spending has gone up, and those that business is doing spectacularly well. Now that might not be sustainable, but it certainly got through a tough period and got through well. I guess if someone said to you, you know, if someone had said to us in say June, July of last year. Uh, look, you're going to have this wonderful opportunity uh, March through September of next year. The government's going to keep your business afloat, and you're going to have a chance to work on your business and make it better. Maybe, uh, yeah, maybe that that uh, that would have been that would have been different. All right, all right. We're going to we we are going to uh, wrap it up there. I've just had a comment from one of our regular viewers saying that this was the best and most informative interview that we've had. So thank you very much. Uh, to Jamie Holroyd from uh, from West Australia. really appreciate you uh, sharing your wisdom with us once again. And Michael, no, fantastic to, to finally um, to finally uh, have you on. Do drive carefully. Uh, that's, uh, uh, Michael's just bought himself a new car. So, um, yeah, be, be careful and be safe. Thank you very much. Thanks. And um, thank you very much to our viewers and listeners. And we'll see you again soon. Cheers. All right. Thank you. Cheers, Cheers all.